This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and today I'm joined by Professor Seth Orenberg. He was recently hired to teach at UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law starting in the fall in both our residential and hybrid JD programs. He's currently an Associate Professor of Law at Duquesne University School of Law. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. You recently had a book titled A History of Financial Technology and Regulation from American Incorporation to Cryptocurrency and Crowdfunding, which was released on Cambridge University Press. Uh, I want to discuss that with you. It's kind of a really interesting topic just for the general public, even outside of the the world of law. Uh, What led you to want to write this book? I got interested in how Twitter was disrupting shareholder activism when I I saw a tweet from Carl Icahn. Carl Icahn is a um, major um, uh, activist shareholder, uh, what what in the 70s and 80s were called corporate raiders, who will purchase stock in a company and then try to encourage management to change its practices, sometimes by divesting an unprofitable line of business or perhaps by acquiring a new line of business. In any event, um, he, um, he tweeted that he had purchased a large stake in Apple and the stock rose immediately. And what was really interesting about this is Carl Icahn um, used Twitter to manipulate uh, management opinions. And this was something that had not the law had not really considered. Uh, the law has rules about how shareholders can uh, engage with management and um, and how management can engage with shareholders and the public. And regulation fair disclosure, which covers this topic, just it was made in the 30s. It wasn't prepared for Twitter. So as I started investigating this, I looked more and more at how financial regulations were impacted by technology and how technology necessitated change in regulations. And um, it just grew from there into a book length project. And uh, as uh, as it evolved, the you know, the world, I had to keep pace with an increasingly um, changing world, because since I started writing this book, we saw the not the emergence, but the prominence of Bitcoin, the um, development of of crowd funding and equity crowdfunding and and several amendments to crowdfunding regulations and uh, the metaverse and the evolution of of the digital internet so it's been it's been a wild ride it's been really fun yeah let's go over to start with crowdfunding i mean the recent ubiquity of crowdfunding is fascinating and all the different niches that come with it whether it's patreon and substack subscriptions to gofundme campaigns for products and community assistance from a legal perspective, I mean, how should lawyers deal with this landscape that basically didn't exist a decade ago? The first step in, in, in dealing with crowdfunding from a legal perspective is sorting it into buckets because the law will treat crowdfunding differently depending on its purpose and its form. Uh, I divide crowdfunding into to five categories. So first and the oldest are um, uh, with crowdfunding is donations. And donations aren't really regulated, so there's there's not a, a huge amount of legal concern around some of that. Of course, there's issues with setting up a nonprofit and receiving donations, but uh, we'll set that aside for the moment. Then we got into um, with artists, music artists were doing crowdfunding as a way to promote uh, creative works uh, that would be released to the public and people who 
engaged in that got rewards. So the second category is rewards-based crowdfunding. And again, not a huge issue here, so long as there's no like overt fraud and, and you're actually you know, trying to create an album and you give somebody a thank you in the credit, it's not a big legal deal. Then Kickstarter came along and that became a little more of an issue because we got into a third category called pre-purchase, where you're basically buying an item that doesn't exist yet and has to be created. And now we get into some consumer protection issues and the uh, Federal Trade Commission Bureau of Pers Consumer Protection will have some control and some oversight over those sort of non-products that haven't come out yet. Uh, so that's kind of light touch regulation. But the real legal work and the real interest gets into the, the final two categories, which are uh, crowd lending, uh, which is when you uh, source a large amount of money for a loan and it takes the form of a debt and, um, and, and then equity crowdfunding, which is the most highly regulated of all because you're selling stock through the internet. And selling stock has been very regulated um, by the states for, uh, well, since, in, you know, as you'll see in the book, since uh, the 1800s, in fact, creating creation of corporations has been super regulated since the 1600s, since they existed. I mean, corporations are legal creations. They're, they're, they're figments of the legal imagination. So they're, they're by nature regulated by law. Uh, and... Um, can you give a couple and, examples yeah. of of companies that people can think of when with these last two examples? Like is it something like a like Lending Club or something like that, or, or is that something? Do they change their name? Lending, Lending Club had had this model, like Lend Kiva. Kiva is the one I was looking for. Crowdsource mm -hmm. Microfinance um, is the uh, it, with Kiva, but yes, um, Lending Club is. They actually don't have that model anymore, which is why I wasn't going to mention them. But I guess for our listeners' purposes. Lending Club is probably the most prominent example. I actually uh, worked with them on, on going public, and I got a and I got a T-shirt to prove it. Um, and uh, uh, basically, crowd lending the, and, and Lending Club's former model um, was basically to be a portal where if you want to borrow money, you go on a website and you say, I, "I'd like to borrow money." The website then looks at you and assesses credit risk and gives you a score. Uh, based on based on that score, uh, you know, people can then invest in you at a given interest rate. So if your score is really high, like if you have a, a high credit score, uh, you'll get a relatively low rate of interest and vice versa. And this was really good for projects with people that had um, uh, some some established business and and basically for growing small businesses. But lending, for reasons that may be beyond the scope of your, your current question, is not really the best vehicle for growing massive companies quickly. Because the short version is that you know, um, there's a concept called usury. You can only charge so much interest. And so uh, you can only, you know, basically you need your risk to equal your reward. Your, your, you know, you know, your risk and reward should, should tie together or you're making a bad investment uh, or you're getting a, an above market deal. So in order to get enough return on your loan, you'd have to charge more than the usury rates, given the risk of investing in these super, well, super risky startup companies. Whereas if you move then into the equity platforms, uh, which is where my, my research and focus is, uh, the, where you're actually investing in the company as a stock, your upside is unlimited. You can make as much money. If that company goes from being worth a million dollars to worth a billion dollars, You've just um, you've just got you know a thousand x return on your investment. Now, do, now 
going forward, I mean, something that's also been maybe for future writings, I mean, how, how does like a Robin Hood and stuff like that kind of play into this ecosystem too? Or is that a completely different thing? Robin Hood is such an interesting crossover, actually, because they have their goal has been to make investment in public companies really easy and kind of fun for, for people. Um, so in law, at least, we have these divisions, which my book really argues have not stood the test of time, but for what it's worth, are still relevant from a legal perspective. So, you know, one of those divisions I just mentioned between debt and equity. Uh, so debt is when you get a guaranteed or not, well, nothing's guaranteed in life, but a, uh, a preordained, let's say, uh, monthly rate. And that, that amount needs to be paid. It's called interest, right? And so anyone who has a mortgage or anyone who has a car loan pays interest as well as paying back the principal. Same thing with a personal loan. And that's one bucket or category. With equity, you don't get paid back on a regular basis. You're actually an owner in the business and you get paid if the business sells, liquidates, you know, something like that happens. So the law has had those two categories forever. But in actuality, there's all sorts of hybrid creatures. There's preferred stock. Preferred stock is a equity investment that has a coupon, that has a, 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 um, a, a dividend that gets paid out on a regular basis. So it's uh, equity with debt-like features or debt with equity-like features. And then we have public and private. You know, pr public companies are the ones that are listed on the stock exchange, and presumably people have all the information they need to make investment decisions. And private companies are the ones that are what we might call startups. You can read about them on Crunchbase. They don't have to disclose their financials and, and limited who can invest in them. Well, that's all good and well until you start having private companies that have 2,000 investors. That's not, that doesn't seem very private. And we have public companies that are very small and have only a couple hundred uh, shareholders. And so these, these divisions uh, have not necessarily stood the test of time. And platforms like Robinhood are really pushing the boundaries because people are treating Robinhood very differently than they would treat investing on like Merrill Lynch or, or, or E-Trade. Um, in general, people were using it in a, in a very like game-like fashion uh, reading stuff on Reddit and kind of going with the crowd. And, um, and, and that's also an interesting idea because all the problems you have with crowds, you know, there are smart crowds and there are dumb crowds, right? There are, there are crowds that have the wisdom of the crowd and there are crowds that are like lemmings running off a cliff. Uh, and by the way, lemmings don't really run off cliffs, but you, you get the expression. So in, in the case of um, Robin Hood, most recently, you know, we had the GameStop episode where people really hyped up that stock and some people cashed out with mega millions other people uh, lost a lot of money and uh that whole that we can talk more about the the nuances if if that's interesting about a sh with the short squeeze but basically you know robin hood allowed people to act as if they were uh, an online crowd as opposed to an educated group of investors who are making independent decisions based on financials and uh and so we're just seeing a breakdown of all these traditional categories. We don't have a ton of time to dive into it, but I mean, also the implications of I'm doing it for activist reasons, which is a big part of the GameStop debacle. And now we're writing now seeing with um, Elon Musk with what he's trying to do with Twitter, which is a whole other level of complexity that maybe not the whole world would have been aware about going on 80 years ago. So 
Elon Musk is such an interesting example. He has been in trouble with the SEC yes. so many times. He does some really, I wrote a, I wrote an article, I wrote a law review article uh, about a tactic. He really, he didn't invent this tactic, but he took it to the next level. So um, Elon Musk uh, uh, effectively um, engaged in what I call uh, hyperfunding, which is a, a new way to generate hype using hype as in hyper, as in hyper as, had a couple different nuances. The paper is called hyperfunding for a couple of reasons. One thing is Elon Musk has his little hyperloop white paper idea where you're supposed to you know, send people in tubes under the ground. Uh, you're not putting me in one of those anytime soon, by the way, um, nor one of his self-driving cars, but that's an aside. And so, you know, he he also uh, had this tactic where he would basically hype a product that didn't exist and pre-sell it. And he didn't even do this, through, but it was basically crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. He basically crowdfunded the Model 3. And he raised um, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars, depending on your estimates. It, it, it may have measured in the billions of dollars by telling people they were going to get this car. And uh, that car didn't come out on time. It took, you know, he, he used that money to develop the product. And he did it on, on the most massive scale ever recorded. It's not traditionally considered a crowdfunding campaign because it wasn't done through a portal. It was done directly. Like you could go and put your credit card in, but you gave $1,000 to Tesla Corporation for a product that didn't exist. And then he took and used that money to make that product. And just like we talked about, AJ, that was, that was um, you know, pre-purchase crowdfunding, but on the most epic scale. Uh, yeah, now, and, and so he's gotten in trouble because some of that hype is not appropriate when it comes to being CEO of a company or being a chairman of a board. You know, you can't just pump your stock. It's not legal. I mean, you have to... You have to disclose things through the proper channels. The SEC governs that. So he's paid fines and and he's uh, he hasn't really apologized. He's been poking the bear a lot, as the expression goes. And um, and that's right. Now he now he wants to take this controlling stake in Twitter and and manipulate how they do business. So it's it's very meta at this point. I mean, he was using Twitter to hype business and now he's using Twitter to hype his stake in Twitter. Um, it's. Uh, yeah, it's like a set of you know Russian dolls here. It makes my head spin. But he he's very he's a very creative guy. I'll give him credit for that. So I want to leave enough time. We got about four minutes left on cryptocurrency. I mean, cryptocurrency appears to be moving. Used to be like this mysterious black box technology that very few people understood, and now it's something that's regularly talked about in the mainstream media. I'd imagine lawmakers and attorneys in the financial realm should keep a keen eye to this expanding world. They're trying to, but the problem is once. Again, I'm going to I have a couple themes that I hope I came across. The, the, the thing is that that our, our old buckets uh, are, are effectively not not fitting our new stuff. Right. We have all these law has all these square pegs and modern technology is presenting us with um, round holes or vice versa. And, and we're just not having a fit. So kind of similar to how I mentioned there was debt and there was equity. And then someone came up with preferred stock. It was a hybrid. We have public companies, we have private companies. Well, suddenly there's, you know, private companies worth a trillion dollars with 2000 shareholders. Like, what does that mean? Uh, and so, which I, and I would call those, by the way, large private companies. I think that is a third category, like preferred stock became. Again, with, with crypto, what is it? What is, is, is it a currency? Is it an investment security? Is it a loan? Is it a commodity? Is it a token? Is it a program? 
Is it a contract, right? And mm-hmm. um, the answer is, well, first off, it depends, right? Because it's it, yeah, technology. Yeah, varies greatly and, from and, uh, coin to coin to uh, NFTs versus other forms of, of digital uh, art of some sort. Absolutely, right? I mean, you could say that, you know, Bitcoin is, uh, let's say you say Bitcoin is a, is a currency or you could even say it's, um, or whatever. Let's say you define that as a currency. It doesn't mean that uh, Terra USD coin is also a currency. Um, you know, if it's pegged to gold, uh, is it a commodity? Is it a derivative? Is it a security? So the first problem is that depending on your answer to that question, a different agency regulates it. Mm. And they're all going to war. And, you know, uh, over who gets who gets to, to deal with this juicy new area. Um, I have part of one of my book chapters, I go through all of different agencies that could theoretically regulate crypto. And I, I come up with over a dozen before I resolve that what we need is probably something new uh, to deal with this this new concept and 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 potentially even new courts that have some technological competence. You know, Wyoming is beginning to do this. Wyoming is showing some real interest to now register a decentralized autonomous organization hmm. as an entity in Wyoming. And um, Delaware was very successful in becoming the specialty court for corporate entities. So there might be a, a race, whether uh, there, in, in, in corporate law, we talk about whether it's a race to the top, meaning you know a race that gets us to the best result because of federalism, or a race to the bottom where our states are competing to um, win favors and 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 seek rents and, and offer rents at increasingly worse conditions. Uh, so we don't know where this race will lead, but I, I think what we'll see next is is a race among the states uh, and among the agencies, a competition to figure out who is going to uh, both. Um, create and regulate these these new kind of entities and constructions. But, you know, if I can leave with sort of one major thought, it's that yeah. is that law has not we can. There is a concept called the law of the horse. Judge Easterbrook wrote a really great paper basically saying just because we have cars doesn't mean we need new rules of the road. Like there were laws regarding horses and how you acted on a horse and we can apply it to cars. Not every new technology requires new law. So we have to be careful and we don't just want to like have a knee jerk reaction that says, oh, here's a new technology. Let's make a new law. Let's make a new agency. Let's create an even larger, you know, administrative, you know, body to, to regulate. And, and, and that's not necessarily the right way to go. And I come from that school of thought that we want to be careful about, about that growth. But that being said, um, it's virtually impossible to, to fit these new financial tools into old regulatory buckets. So we're going to have to either not regulate them, right? Or mm-hmm. regulate them badly based on precedent or figure out new ways to think about these new things. And, and that's where I hope to, to make a contribution is um, I think that they do need to be regulated. I think that regulation actually offers some benefits if done well, but it's gonna require some new thinking with, with an eye toward the technology and understanding how it's different from what we used to have. Uh, not reinventing the wheel in all cases, mind you, because there's a lot of similarities. We can learn a lot from the past. I just wrote a book on the history, but you know, history is not circular. It's it's a, it's a spiral, right? We never exactly get back to the same point, but there are there are themes. So I hope that I've pointed out some themes that have reoccurred enough that we have some some sense of precedent. But uh, it would be an error, in my opinion, to to try to to try to regulate 
uh, you know, to try to like regulate crypto the way we regulated um, banknotes in the 1820, private banknotes in the 1820s. There are analogies, but there, there, there's, there's enough disanalogy that we have to think about some new, some new approaches. Professor Seth Orenberg, thank you so much for joining me. We're excited to have you joining us here in the fall to teach in our residential and hybrid JD programs. I'll put a link to his book, A History of Financial Technology and Regulation from American Incorporation to Cryptocurrency and Crowdfunding in the episode description on the podcast version of the show. And thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.